My name's Steven. Sarah's my wife. And so I have a newfound appreciation for uh, single parents after this weekend. Uh, we have two girls, one's five, one's 10, and just me all weekend. So I'm like, okay. And I'm preaching. So it's, it's been fun. So God bless you if you're a single parent. You have much more energy and focus than I do on my own. Uh, so let's start off with, uh, with a real singer, shall we? In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic bully. And believe me, I edited that down. It was much longer when I first read it. Although I strongly, obviously, disagree with Dawkins on basically everything regarding God, I do have to say that there's something to what he's saying that does hit a little bit of a chord in me. And that's the fact that there are parts of the Bible, specifically of the Old Testament, that are very, very difficult to deal with, that we're not quite sure how to process. I know there's parts of it that I read that I just kind of cringe on the inside. It just makes me super uncomfortable. Sometimes I'll read things in the Old Testament, and my impulse is to want to go find all the Bibles everywhere and hit the magic delete button that makes it all disappear. Not because it's bad, but because it's so darn confusing. And I know that every person who reads this is going to have to struggle with what to do with those parts of the Bible. Because there's parts of the Bible that just paint God in a downright terrible light. So what do we do with those parts, especially of the Old Testament? How do we read the hard parts of the Bible, the parts that seem to show nothing more than an angry, vindictive God, a vengeful, all the other things that Dawkins said, God. A God that, honestly, I think... The biggest problem is that we don't understand and that we have no idea how to explain it to other people. When they read it, we start to cringe inside because we're like, shoot, now I have to come up with a good answer for this. And I'm not quite sure what that is. Well, there's a couple of different ways that we can deal with this, so we can process these types of passages. You know, there's ways that churches do it. Uh, one of them is just never to talk about those parts of the Bible, right? Uh, that's pretty common. No, no throwing shade at anybody. That's just what it is. Uh, sometimes it's just easier to avoid and move on uh, than to actually deal with it. Uh, another common way is the pick-and-choose version of the Bible, which has become increasingly popular uh, as the years have gone on, and that's basically that you just take out what you like, and you basically cut up all the rest of it and don't, don't deal with it. There is an article in The Independent, which is a British news source, that, that talked about this version of dealing with the Bible. And the woman, she says that she's a churchgoer and a fan of theology, and this is what she says. I think Christianity can progress by accepting that the Bible is a piece of history, taking from it what is still relevant. For example, equality, treatment of the poor and elderly, and she goes on. Do we avoid completely? Do we just take out what we like? Do we treat it as a work of fiction, as purely a work of history? Or if you're like us, then we're stuck with the last option, right? 
where we believe that the Bible actually has something to say to us today and that we got to deal with all of it. So how do we deal with all of it well? I think three things are important as we engage with the difficult parts of the Bible. The first is to just recognize that the Bible isn't supposed to be a cut and paste object like we usually use it for. It's not really supposed to just be a tool for Instagram and Facebook to flash up a cool graphic, a pretty graphic with your favorite verse. Uh, for God so loved the world isn't the end of John 3, 16. There's more that follows it. And there's lots of other examples of that where we just kind of take it out of context. And it's important for us to realize that it's a big book. And there's lots more in it than just the part that we're reading at that time. And it's important for us to recognize that Jesus actually took his entire theology from the Old Testament. So it can't just be that Jesus is the nice guy. He's the happy-go-lucky hippie that wants to give everybody a hug. And the God of the Bible is the angry old man sitting on a throne who's cranky that the kids are messing up again. God, Jesus takes everything from the Old Testament. He reads it. He quotes it. He pulls and expounds upon it. He tells us that we have to read all of the Old Testament through the lens of his life, death, and resurrection. How's that for a tool for us? He says that to the guys that are walking on the road to Emmaus that are cranky because they think Jesus is still dead, and then they realize they're having a conversation with him. And... We can't forget or ignore the immense love that God shows in the Old Testament. It's really easy to read the Old Testament to get caught up in questions of genocide, to get caught up in questions of anger and wrath, to wonder what happened. But the part that we can exclude sometimes is the reality that God still loves people in the Old Testament, that God still goes to extreme measures so that people can know that love throughout the Old Testament. Uh, there's a Christian apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias who lays this out really beautifully. And so rather than me saying it, turn to the screens. Says, uh, how would you explain the drastic difference between um, the wrathful Old Testament God and the loving New Testament God? The wrathful God of the Old Testament over against the benevolent and the gracious God of the New. It's a false dichotomy. If you really look at the Old Testament, you have to first see what it is that was being accomplished there. The moral law was given to a people with a dynamic attendance of the supernatural and the miraculous. If you go through the Exodus, punctuated miracles, the time of creation, the time of Moses, the time of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, you move on to the time of John the Baptist and the early church, those are the classic periods of miracles. And when the dramatic disclosure of God was attended by such incontrovertible evidence, like food coming from the heavens to take care of you every day, a double portion coming before the Sabbath, when the waters are getered, when 
the bitterness is taken away, when the dead are raised like Lazarus and so on in the New Testament, in proportion to the nature of the dramatic miracle was the rightful expectation of compliance and obedience. Because if you don't obey in the face of such a dramatic revelation, you will never obey no matter what happens. That's the first thing I want you to know. Second thing is that God was building a covenant people through whom he was going to disclose himself. But in that covenant relationship, you hear such extraordinary statements. You see, for example, in Isaiah, I think the, the, the parable of the vineyard there where he says, what more could I have done for you that I have not already done? Wherefore, when you're looking for grapes, why do you, when I'm looking for grapes, why do you bring forth wild grapes? When you look at the book of Hosea, it is the most magnificent exposition of the love of God. How do we know that? Because here's a prophet by the name of Hosea who marries a woman by the name of Gomer who turns out to be a prostitute. Imagine being Hosea and looking for your wife in the heart of the city and you see a lineup of men who are standing outside the brothel to buy her for an hour's pleasure. And Hosea stands in line to buy his wife back for a day's rations and half the price of a slave of that time, he brings his wife back. Imagine that feeling of the one you have loved becoming a harlot. And yet what does God say to him? I command you to go and love that woman beloved of her adulterers. It's the ultimate expression of grace. So when you say it's a hard concept of law and judgment, no, no. We are missing the proportion of the revelation and miracle that God is expecting a response to it. And we are missing the fact that he loved them so much. And in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, it begins by saying, I have loved you. And yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The love of God is the central feature of the Old and the New Testament. I have loved you, and yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The problem with the Old Testament isn't in the character of God. It's in the constant choice that his people make to ignore and to reject his love. The Old Testament is honestly a love story that's a tragedy of the highest order. And the only place that that tragedy is uh, kind of found its solution, its resolution, is in the sacrifice of Jesus. You can't take one without the other. It's all a part of God's plan. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into one of these really difficult, fun, angry God passages. So pray with me. Jesus, we just ask you to come and to fill us right now. Help us to not reject your love. Help us to not push you away when you are calling us closer. Jesus, we want to accept you and what in your hand that you're holding out there to us. And so I pray that this morning that you'll just make us more and more clear on who you are and how much you love us, the great extent that you've gone to rescue us, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our, our kind of wayward glances at things that aren't going to hold up over time. Come and be here with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let's jump into this. Ezekiel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can always grab one in the back or on the sides at any time. Let's read this, starting in verse 1. A message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. So the mountains are a reference to shrines, to temples, uh, chapels that are all throughout Israel that the Israelites were supposed to destroy when they first came in. They were left there by the previous inhabitants of the land. They didn't destroy them. And as we'll talk about later, instead they filled them up and started doing stuff there. Uh, But at this point in the history of Israel, it was said, how's this for an image, that you could stand on any hill in Israel, and Israel's a hilly country, and you would see shrines covering all of the hills in the area. There were thousands of them covering all the high places throughout the country. This wasn't about one person worshiping a false god. It was about literally the entire country worshiping false gods. Let's keep going. Verse 3. I'm about to bring war upon you, and I will smash your pagan shrines. All your altars will be demolished, and your places of worship will be destroyed. I will lay your corpses in front of your idols and scatter your bones around your altars. Ouch. And you will know that I alone am the Lord. But I will let a few of my people escape destruction, and they will be scattered among the nations of the world. Then they will remember me. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful hearts and lustful eyes that long for their idols. They will know that I alone am the Lord and that I was serious when I said I would bring this calamity on them. How many times have you heard God say how hurt he is by our actions? That's a pretty strong picture that's being painted here. I cut out two of the times that it talks about corpses being laid on altars. It actually gets much more violent than what I just read. Uh, There's a lot going on here. So why is God so angry? What's the deal? You have to go back a thousand years to understand why he's so angry. Because a thousand years before, God freed the Israelites from the Egyptians. They were slaves, and they cried out. They kept praying, saying, God, bring freedom, free us. Take us back to the land that you promised to us. And so they sent, God sent this guy named Moses. And Moses comes and leads them into freedom. And while they're traveling to the land that was going to be known as Israel, God takes Moses up on a mountain, and he gives them the stone tablets and some other stuff. Uh, It's not probably quite as dramatic as it looks like in the Ten Commandments, but uh, he takes him up on this mountain and he reveals himself to to him, and he gives him the books of the law, which we know as probably the three most boring books in the Bible. Uh, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not our choices of fun reading. Uh, Lots of rules, lots of things that were like, thank God I don't have to worry about that because I really like bacon. There's lots of stuff in there. But when Moses comes down with all of these rules, all of these guidelines for worship, like, I mean, it was, every, it was even like 
potty training rules. I mean, it was like kind of, it, it's very exact stuff that, that he sends down with him. When he comes down, God tells him to tell the Israelites this one thing. This is what I'm going to do for you if you promise to only worship me. And the Israelites, to a woman, all said, got it, we're in. Every single one of them said, we're in. This is the deal. We're in for this. And yet, that didn't happen. Listen to what God tells the Israelites in Leviticus 26, verse 1. He says, do not make idols or set up carved images or sacred pillars or sculptured stones in your land so you may worship them. I am the Lord your God. And then he continues on and he gives like the most amazing promises that he could ever give. He says, I'm going to give you peace throughout your land. You're not going to have to worry about anything. Uh, you don't have to be scared of monsters or bad guys or anything. I'm going to protect you. Fear, you don't have to worry about. He promises tremendous victory. He says, you take 100 people, I'll give you victory over 10,000. That's pretty sweet. He says, you always have food. He says, he'll be with them. He'll be a constant presence among them. This was a really good gig that God promised to them. And the only thing that he said you get all of this. You just have to worship only me. Look at verse 14. However, if you do not listen to me or obey all these commands, I will punish you. And his punishments are rough. Disease. Food was going to be really hard to grow. And the food that they did grow was going to be eaten by other people, which is super frustrating, right? I personally hate it when my kids eat off my plate because it's my food. I don't like it when other people do that defeat at the hands of their enemies. It was like total destruction if you don't do this one thing. When I was 14 or 15, I did the beautiful thing of driving my parents' minivan into the side of our garage. Uh, all you parents here can just like cringe on the inside, or if you had a similar experience, you know. Uh, it was completely innocent. Uh, I was just doing what I was asked to do, and my parents were out of town. So I backed out the van, got the lawnmower out, mowed the lawn, put the lawnmower back, and drove the car in. Well, coming out was fine. Going in, I hit the gas instead of nudging it, because this was actually the first time that I had driven a car. I'm probably not smart, but... Uh, so then I hit the side of the garage, and it immediately starts to crumble because it's brick. Um, and there was a uh, foot-long scrape from the uh, gas tank all the way to the front mirror. It was pretty awesome what I did. And my parents grounded me for three months. It was the entire summer. And really, the only two things I could do was hang out by myself reading or playing basketball in our backyard. No TV, no video games, no friends, no fun for three months. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This is torture. I guess it's a good thing that killer crops and diseases weren't part of the punishment options at that point. Otherwise, it could have been much worse for me. God was serious when he said, don't do this. He said, just worship me. And he ends it with this, with these words in verse 30. I will destroy your pagan shrines and knock down your places of worship. 
I will leave your lifeless corpses piled on top of your lifeless idols. I will scatter you among the nations. Your land will become desolate and your cities will lie in ruins. That's Leviticus, but it should sound really familiar. That's word for word what we read in Ezekiel 6. God had given them a pretty big heads up. They knew what was coming. It was all about idols. God, the Israelites had taken these shrines and they had built various different types of idols out of wood, stone, uh, gold, metal, and they had placed them in these shrines. And then they built extra altars outside of the shrines and they would regularly do the worship practices related to whatever God that they were worshiping. There were sexual practices uh, tied into it. There was prayers and chants. There were sacrifices of animals, uh, sometimes even worse. Uh, we won't go into all those details, but they were bad. And this is what the Israelites were doing on a regular everyday basis as they worshiped these gods and these shrines they had set up. And then when it was the proper time of year, they would take up their goats and whatever other animals, go down to Jerusalem for the feast, for the festival, give their sacrifices to God, and then come back home and start doing it again. Worshiping both gods at the same time. God's issue with Israel here is not that they're worshiping other idols, although he hates that. God doesn't destroy somebody for worshiping another idol. He goes out of his way to make sure that you know who he is and how much he loves you. God brings destruction on the Israelites because they're worshiping God and these other idols. God cannot stand for his people to worship him and something else at the same time because he's well aware of this reality. There's no room for both. It's not an option. God isn't coming up with a new disciplinary plan that is extreme. God is staying firm to the promise that he made 1,000 years before. Can you picture putting up with something for a thousand years. I put up with something for an hour and I get angry. Like a thousand years. Do you know how many generations that is? It's probably about 20 generations of people who every single one of them kept doing the same exact thing that God had told them not to do. 20 generations of idol worshiping while still trying to pretend that they're worshiping God. Repenting, go back, idol worship. Repent, go back, idol worship. For a thousand years, they had a thousand years to self-correct, and they didn't. And here's where the rubber hits the road for us. Because if we're being honest, in our hearts, we do similar things a lot. We worship other gods, probably without realizing it most of the time. We don't do things quite as blatant as the Israelites were doing. But the root of it is the same. We create high places and shrines throughout our houses and our kitchens and our bedrooms and our offices and our garages at our favorite restaurants or the neighborhood bar. We create these places where we engage in worship of other things other than God. 
And it's a really dangerous game. As we talk about this, I just want to say first, before we jump in to idolatry, which is a fun subject, right? Uh, that if you start to feel shame, you know what your response needs to be? Holy Spirit, please come and help. Because the enemy really desperately wants to keep those idols between you and Jesus. So if something brings something up in your heart, just start giving it over to God. Don't allow that shame to come in. That's like the devil's number one tool for keeping you separated from God, from finding free freedom in your heart. And this morning, I want us to come to a new level of freedom in our lives. I think that's what Jesus wants for us. So what is idolatry? Tim Keller defines it this way. He says, idolatry is valuing something more than you value God. Pretty simple. Placing something else higher in your heart than you place God. It's really important who or what is first in your life. So let's, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's, let's get uncomfortable uh, all together. Uh, let's talk about some idols. Sound good? The first one's work or career. Life ha only has meaning and worth if I'm highly productive, fulfilled, and excelling in my job or career. The Bible has tons of positive things to say about work. And if you're starting in your head to argue with me already, that might be a hint that, um, but anyway, uh, lots of good things to say about work, finding fulfillment in your job. God really wants that for us. There's nothing negative in that. But the tricky part, I think, is that it's much easier to find fulfillment in your job than it is in your relationship with God. And here's why. Because sometimes in your job, you can get almost instant gratification. Not quite instant, but close. You know, if you work in sales and you make a big sale, you feel good. You're like, this is awesome. This is great. If your boss comes and tells you that you're doing a good job, that you're, you know, your projects just off the rails, amazing, you feel really good about yourself. You find fulfillment there. If, uh, you work with people and you start to see these people changing and life's really uh, changing them for the better. You start to feel fulfilled. If you're a checklist person, it's even easier for you because at the end of the day, you say, I did three things that I didn't think I was going to be able to reach. Yes, I did it. And the fulfillment starts to come in. And the painful part is that you're never going to have that in your relationship with God. You're never going to have instant gratification. Maybe once in your, I won't say never, maybe once, twice in your life, you will have instant gratification, but most of the time it's not. It's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. It's just continuing on in your relationship with God without the immediate response that you're looking for. Your relationship with God will take time, but if you make work or your career your God, you're just simply worshiping at the wrong altar. Another painful and common one is materialism and comfort. Materialism says that life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and possessions. Comfort kind of continues with that. It says that life only has meaning and worth if I have a certain kind of pleasure or a particular quality probably relaxed quality of life. So let's get personal with this. 
when your bank account drops below that number, which you know what that number is, I know what that number is for me. When your bank account drops below that number, does your trust in God's providence and his ability to take care of you disappear? How about how you spent your money last year? I told you, we're going to get real uncomfortable. Did you spend more money on bringing yourself pleasure and happiness in whatever way than you did on advancing the kingdom of God? Whether that's giving to the church, giving to the poor, giving to missions, whatever it would be, you fill in the blank. I'm not saying it just has to be here. But did you spend more money on yourself being happy, content, and comfortable than you did on the kingdom of God last year? What I'm asking is, are you willing to sacrifice your money, your stuff, your ability to travel, your hobbies, your TV binging, whatever it is for you, for Jesus? And honestly, this is my own personal area of struggle, so I'm preaching to the choir right now. Because I'm willing to talk about a lot of my faults, but if you take my bank statement and you start questioning me on how much I eat out, go to coffee shops, um, read my favorite fantasy novel, or watch my favorite TV shows, we might have to fight. It might get real, real fast. This is an area for me that I have to give up to Jesus pretty continuously. It's not an easy one for me. But again... If you're worshiping those things, you're never going to reach fulfillment. It's never going to be enough. Let's hit three big ones at once. Idolizing a person, your family, or a relationship. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if this person or people, my spouse, my kids, my parents, boss, best friend, etc., is happy or they're happy with me. This is just for your own sanity. If you give your happiness, your fulfillment over to somebody else, friends, you're going to end up nowhere but hurt. They are never going to do it. They are never going to love you in the way that you want them to love you. They're never going to give you the self-worth and fulfillment that you're looking for. It's always going to leave you in pain if that's where you're placing all of your value and your worth. And the relationship is really similar. And I'll put an asterisk and say, this can be the same for somebody who's been married for 30 years as it is for somebody who's dating. But life only has meaning and I only have worth if this person is in love with me. I had a friend a few years ago who started going to church uh, because a girl he had a crush on invited him. Uh, It's a pretty common story, I think, for guys in their 20s. Sometimes it works, other times. But he jumped right in. He was coming to church every week. He was going to small group. He was hanging out with us regularly. Uh, Shortly after coming, he pulled my friend Adam and I aside after small group and said that he wanted to pray and give his life to Jesus. And we were over the roof. We were ecstatic because it was obvious that God was doing something in his life. Well, a couple of months later, he finally asks this girl out. And she said no. And he flipped out. And he said, are you, like, really? I came to church. I go to small group. I've been hanging out with your friends. I even decided to follow Jesus, and it's still enough? 
And she just looked at it. She was like, this is, this is, I, I give it to him. This, this would be harsh. But she was like, honestly, I was never attracted to you. I was just inviting you to church, which is like brutal for him. But he walked away from God that day. He never came back to church. He never engaged with us again. He completely turned away because unfortunately in his heart, this hope for a relationship was number one and Jesus was only number two. If Jesus is a side benefit, a side product of what you're really going after in life, you are going to be broken because Jesus can't be number two. As my friend found out painfully, it was tragic. Don't make relationships a God. I could keep going. There's self-image, there's religion, there's suffering, control, power, sex, all types of addictions. All these things that we could place as number one in our life. It's like C.S. Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. The good news, though, is that Jesus wants us to be free and that he won't stop at anything to bring us freedom if we're willing to take it. I know sometimes in life it feels like Jesus is really far away when the reality is that he's right behind you. You're just holding on to your idol too strongly. You're not willing to turn around to let go. Sometimes, and I've experienced this, you feel like you're going through like a horrible place in life, kind of a desert experience is what it's often called. And it's really Jesus letting you go through that so you could be at a place where you embrace him again. And this is one of the hardest parts of it for me to understand because it goes against everything that I want. But sometimes Jesus holds off on giving us the things we really want because he knows that we won't still rely on him if we have it. He loves us that much. He's not rejecting us. He's not pushing us away. He's very willing to give it to us. He just knows that we're not willing to take it and to keep worshiping him. All of this so that we can be free from our idols. So we begin to come to an end. The beautiful thing is that Ezekiel 6 is not the end of the story. It's not even the end of Ezekiel, which is good. The Israelites sinned and sinned and sinned, but still God didn't abandon them. Look at Ezekiel 36 with me. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. And when I bring you back, people will say, this former wasteland is now like the Garden of Eden. The abandoned and ruined cities now have strong walls and are filled with people. Then the nation, the surrounding nations will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruins and replanted the wasteland. The former wastelands now like the Garden of Eden. I love that. Everything that God does is for this one singular purpose. And that is so that all people will know that he is the Lord and the only God. 
From, the, from Abraham to the exile, God's plan was simple. It was that the people of Israel would worship him and would worship him alone so that through their worship, through God's hand on that people group, all the world would know who God was and all the world would come to worship him. But the Israelites sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and were not willing to worship God and God alone. So God came and he flipped the script. He didn't stop. He didn't give up. He didn't change, but he flipped the script and he said, okay, then the answer is that I'm going to come down. I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to live, suffer, and die so that you can know my love. So that he could show all the world who he is and how much he loves humanity because he is a jealous God. God is not okay with you worshiping something else other than him. He hates it. He loves you too much to encounter the jealousy of God and to be unchanged like the Israelites is a terrible, terrible reality. It's heartbreaking. It's a tragedy. If you worship other gods, if you hold on to them and you reject Jesus as you're doing it, you're making the wrong decision. We're all making the wrong decision when we do that. Because there's only room for one God in your life. And I desperately hope that that's Jesus. Because that's the only one who's going to work. Everything else will fail. So the worship team comes back up. Our freedom only comes from acknowledging that we are loved by a God who is love, a God who's gone to extremes to bring us into his love. He paid the price so that we wouldn't have to be destroyed. He took it on himself. And that's the God that we're loved by, a God that's willing to take on our sin, our failure, our inevitable end so that he can change the script, so that we could know him totally and completely. Let's pray, and then we're gonna go into a time of worship, and I'll be back to lead us in a time of prayer at the end of the service, but let's pray. Jesus, we just say that we, this morning, we want to know that love. We don't want the end of the story to be us hugging something else other than you, unwilling to give it up. We want freedom. We want the freedom that comes through you, Jesus. And so Jesus, I just ask this morning that you will come and touch every single one of us here. Reveal to us who you are and how much you love us. Reveal to us what you want to do in our hearts. Show us how you're working in our lives, how you're changing us, how you're restoring us. We don't want to be in the desert we want to be in the Garden of Eden. We want to be in the place of your presence. And we want others to, to know that truth, to know that reality too. So I just ask you to come, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Change us. Again, we just say that we love you, Jesus. And we're your people. In Jesus' name.